Rick Madison and Scott Lanigan, chair of Central Okanagan Journey Home Society, delve into the problems surrounding Kelowna's homelessness issue and interview community stakeholders to discover possible solutions. Uh, hi and welcome. It's uh, Rick Madison along with Scott Lanigan. We have a special guest, officer in charge, the Kelowna RCMP Detachment, Kara Trinance. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, so we are all about... Um, about superintendent. Did I'm just I, saying you forgot that. Like officer in charge. This, yes, but superintendent as well. Like that, that is an important... I needed notes. I know. I didn't I take notes. I should have told you that, but that's okay. <laughs> Um, so we have, uh, you here, you're here, a, you've been here a year now, I understand. That's right. A year this week. Okay. Congratulations. We could call this the one year interview. Wow. We, uh, that's it, exciting. Yeah. No, this is, uh, this is good. Cause one year is, is about right. Cause now we can actually talk about the year that was the year ahead and all that kind of stuff. This podcast is about homelessness and, uh, we have many questions. Scott, um, do you want... Do you want to give was, Kara was it, one? Well, well, I can. I, I, it's a year since you've returned to Kelowna because uh, maybe our listeners don't know that you uh, have had a long history with Kelowna. Am I correct? Born and raised in Kelowna. Kelowna General Hospital all the way through till when I was 17 years old and I left for university. That's great. And then you worked away for a little while and then uh, came on back. That's right. So I went to UBC. Before UBC was UBCO, I headed off to UBC Kelowna. I'm sorry, UBC Vancouver. And uh, actually, that's not true. We had UBCO at that time. It was um, it was evolutionary. So yeah. we, uh, I was off at UBC Vancouver campus uh, in the Department of Social Work. And from there, left for my RCMP training and have worked around the province since then. I've been in all four districts twice. Wow. So a lot of different moves over the last uh, 22 years now. And um, prior to returning to Kelowna, I came from the Sea to Sky. Wow, that's great. And then found your way back here. And uh, like you said, it's amazing what happens when you've been gone and then return. And then uh, you dropped in in the middle of COVID. <laughs> sure did. <laughs> So besides nothing else going on, nothing else but a global pandemic, some uh, complex issues in this community when it comes to homelessness and uh, and of course, a few other uh, issues that were pertinent and relevant for me as a police leader. Absolutely. So I, you know, I wonder, you know, you're you, you come in obviously with some background knowledge of Kelowna and the surrounding area and then an understanding from, uh, you know, a, a policing perspective on. Uh, the complex issues associated with homelessness, but perhaps like w when you first came here and thought you understood what the specific needs were of Kelowna around homelessness to versus what you know now, uh, what are maybe some of those learnings? Yeah, so I think what's important to uh, remember about what we're talking about here in Kelowna is that it parallels a lot of the other communities in BC, um, not only the ones that I've worked in, but the ones that my uh, fellow colleagues uh, through the BC Association of Chiefs of Police are dealing with in their communities. This issue of homelessness here in Kelowna is not unlike the conversations in Vancouver. Uh, I've worked in the Lower Mainland District twice. Um, it's not unlike what my colleagues in Vancouver Island are dealing with. Uh, Vancouver's police, or sorry, Vancouver's um, 
chief constable has been dealing with this a lot. This goes back to who, who we are, municipal versus RCMP yeah. detachments. But at the end of the day, your officers in charge or your chiefs of police, whether you're a municipal or RCMP detachment, are doing the same job in contract policing uh, with their municipalities. And we have a lot of communities across BC that are dealing with complex issues around homelessness. So it's not just homelessness that... Um, I think that this conversation should stem around there is homelessness. There are persistent and chronic offenders around property crime. There are those who are suffering from mental health, substance abuse uh, concerns. And there are simply those who are down and out on their luck and underhoused. So we really need to break down those definitions and start to look at this in a both macro and micro level. I think if we wanted to get to the roots of it and sort of that plan forward and way forward as a community. So, and, and maybe describe for the listeners, you know, there's, um, there's been a long-standing discussion about <clears throat> what falls in the police lap versus the legal implications. Because we have, we have you know, basically there is uh, a word that's been used, which is catch and release. And there seems to be uh, different houses that need to all be working in concert if we're going to actually systematically syst- there's a word. Systematically Thank or... Thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's, there's many. But but we have to be working in concert to, to, to move the needle. And it seems like that may or may not be happening. What are your views on on the legal system catching up with what needs to happen. I, w- I don't want to interrupt you, Kara, first, but catch and release just in case individuals are wondering when, when an individual is arrested for some sort of uh, reason and then they are released back uh, to the street without any kind of follow-up or additional uh, issues with that individual being uh, rectified. Yeah, and so if we kind of delve into that definition just a little bit further, because there's multiple things that can happen. One is that police are left in a situation where they have had the perception from the courts that this is not a matter to be dealt with anymore through the courts, such as drug possession or low-level drug trafficking. Those issues are not ones that the police are um, are bringing forward to the courts anymore because we've been given instruction we won't be dealing with possession charges. That's not something that this uh, society is uh, in favor of, and this is not the direction that we will be proceeding with this. And then, you know, if you evolve even further into catch and release and you look at what is it that the courts have the ability to process in a timely manner that would meet the implications of Jordan, which is a Supreme Court ruling that uh, talks about getting things to court in a timely manner so that people aren't over-incarcerated for minor offenses or breaches of minor offenses. And or, uh, so that's about the charge approval. That is whether or not Crown has the ability to get that matter to the courts in a timely manner and what is the current sort of backlog. And then if we talk about that COVID conversation, which uh, saw that remand facilities were um, over... Uh, burdened by people in remand facilities, we needed to see those facilities go down. And the conversation around um, COVID was, are you going to be remanded for a small property crime offense and risk somebody dying of COVID in our jail cells? And so the orders from the judges that they received through the province and through the federal government and other levels of of government were that they were to uh, decrease the population sizes in the remand facilities and get those people back out into the streets and into other care and other programming so that there were not uh, deaths from COVID in incarceration uh, and in remand facilities. And so that conversation since the start of the pandemic has left police uh, burdened even more so by low-level property crime and nowhere to turn to put those people. The jails are increasingly closed for police officers and 
you have somebody at three in the morning who's been incarcerated for a property crime offense, and we're seeing them kick back out onto the streets very quickly with little to no uh, recourse for the police to be able to um, deal with those individuals. So that's persistent property crime. That is persistent uh, drug use. And I think what we need to really kind of look at there is what are the long-term solutions and what are the short-term solutions? What can we do with people um, right away who are uh, wreaking havoc in the community through property crime? And how do we help those people um, right now either uh, make choices to stop committing a life of crime and or redirect them onto a pathway of healthcare if that can be available to them, if those individuals are choosing that pathway of healthcare because you can't force somebody into a pathway of healthcare, um, if that's a route that they're willing to choose and a road that they're willing to go down, is that available to them here in our systems today? And can we redirect them from the courts to the healthcare in a timely manner to get the treatment that they need? And can we make those uh, terms and conditions of their release from jail um, that they comply with those conditions of healthcare? If they're not complying with those conditions of healthcare and we find them back before uh, the police again and or before the courts, what could some of those outcomes be? Lots of different angles when yeah, it looks no at kidding. catch and release. It's just not that simple. <laughs> so it, it does seem to be, uh, you know, chronic, persistent offenders. And is it an 80-20 rule? Like, is it, there's that small percentage that seem to be, you know, repeat offenders that you're seeing? So, no, there's not a small percentage of repeat offenders. In fact, uh, our police officers are dealing with a rather... Um, high number of complex individuals that we are dealing with before the courts over and over again. Um, but the the issues vary. The issues vary from complex mental health issues to persistent drug use and drug addictions and um, poverty, um, race, trauma, homelessness. Lots of things bring people to the attention of the police and none of those can be um, really easily put in a box. Each one has a unique uh, complexity that needs to be looked at quite holistically to de- determine whether or not that person or that individual um, is on a pathway to healthcare, is on a pathway to uh, social assistance uh, to meet those needs, and or is looking at all of that and saying, I'm not prepared to uh, face these traumas in my world that have brought me to the place that I'm at right now and move forward in a manner that's restorative right now. That's one I could probably talk about for our 30-year plan for Kelowna, yeah. if I had a vision for Kelowna 30 years from now. So, yeah, so it's, oh, go ahead. Well, I'm just thinking about, so the NDP, before they called the election, the day before they called the election, they talked about PACT, which was getting that extra nurse along with, with police. And to my knowledge, as of today, there has not been a nurse hired yet to to be part of those teams, which I think is a is a is a great move forward. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is must be some frustration, I would think. Correct, absolutely. We want to see Interior Health come to the table and fund two full time psychiatric nurses that ride in police cars with our police officers. But at this time, Interior Health is not seeing the need that we are seeing. And our statistics reflect that we are on track for 800 files involving mental health this year that the police will be attending. And our police officers are police officers. They are not trained in the field of mental health. They are not mental health nurses. They are not social workers. Uh, While some of us come to a background with social work or criminology as something we may have studied in university, that's not our role. So yes, we do want to see social workers and mental health nurses uh, 
paired with police officers. Uh, we have only one funded um, psychiatric nurse. They work um, the hours of 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. When I was in cells the other day dealing with a unrelated matter, uh, one of my police officers pulled me in and asked if I would help them with uh, a female who was in our cell block. It was under quick assessment that I realized that that female needed health services. She needed uh, mental health services and she needed the interaction of an acute care team there. Um, she was coming down from her substance use from the day before and we were not going to be able to release her to the streets until she was able to get a psychiatric assessment. And so that means at that time of day, which was 7 a.m., our police officer is taking that person to the emergency room, which we know is a long wait time, which we know is um, already overburdened. And that's because there is no health team available. ACT will come on later in the day and be able to assist us. After 12 o'clock, they have a roundtable. Uh, they could be able to assist us at about one o'clock in the afternoon. But we're talking about seven o'clock in the morning when this prisoner needed to be dealt with uh, by health. And so certainly there are gaps there where we need health to come to the table and be available in those uh, times when we are looking at uh, releasing somebody early in the morning. Um, those people at that time need to go for psychiatric assessment. They need to go uh, through the emergency room doors with a police officer being escorted. And and yeah, I was going to say, I think people need to understand that even fuller. So the option for you without that psychiatric nurse is uh, uh, incarceration or emergency room. Those are like the only two options. There's no other like, hey, we understand this individual. The nurse understand they can assess. They can help that person get medication or what have you. And that then the option isn't necessarily putting them inside a jail cell or taking an emergency. It, it could actually be an alternate solution. But then additionally, in this situation you just mentioned, so your officer isn't necessarily going to drop that individual off by themselves at 7 a.m. That officer now, that's their duty to be with that individual full-time, am I correct? Correct, until that person is seen by a designated physician, uh, sorry, a physician at a designated psychiatric facility. And so that physician needs to be available. If the physicians are tied up with other patients, we might be seen by a charge nurse or a triage nurse and or another nurse and be provided with a bed, but we still might have a wait time of one to two to six hours at times uh, waiting to get. Now, Kelowna is very good at looking at the police are there with a uh, health nurse. We need to get them through the doors and back out onto the streets as quickly as possible. But there's been lots of times when we've been tied up at the hospital two, three hours and our supervisors, our sergeants are saying, hey, this person's still tied up at the hospital and having to go have those high level conversations to get them out the door. Um, I fully believe that we could reduce that burden with full-time psychiatric um, nurses that are there on a shift with our police officers able to make those assessments. A nurse in cells would also be uh, a very useful addition to our detachment that is available in other detachments around BC. There are nurses staffed to um, centers like Kelowna, where we are a hub for uh, transition either to Oliver Correction Center or Kamloops Regional Correction Center. And uh, we are a great location to be able to um, provide health services for patients, or sorry, for individuals who need both health care and um, are incarcerated. So lots of need there. And certainly we would like to see that uh, side of the table met hmm. well if interior health is listening 800 did you say 800 we're on par for 800 this year okay. so that's a halfway through the year uh, run of our statistics that we were somewhere around 400 i believe last year we were down at the 637 if i have that correct uh from my memory mental health calls uh in one year we're up uh this year again almost by 20 percent so uh, sorry scott 
and I'm only going to say that once. <laughs> you got to um, say that, Rick. I'm getting a bit emotional. <laughs> so the one thing, um, w- which you know, might be a sentiment shared by by some business people around Kelowna that have, you know, various homelessness that are are camped out or have to be moved or, you know, they they seem to be a constant presence, um, and they're frustrated. You know, they're they're frustrated. Are we? S- are we able to move the needle? And I know it's not just it's just not RCMP. It's you're part of a bigger puzzle. Uh, downtown patrol is is another one. Are those are those mechanisms starting to to make a difference? Are we starting to move the the needle again in the right way? Yeah. So this year we were talking about one year mark here. This year, uh, in by May long weekend, we were able to put twelve officers out on patrol in foot and bike patrols in our downtown and priority areas, including Rutland and the rail trail on foot or on bike. And those 12 officers are purely dedicated to dealing with social disorder, uh, safety in our public spaces, um, our downtown businesses, and that cooperative approach towards how we can make that space very usable and comfortable for all. So our police officers are uh, breaking down uh, the outdoor sheltering site, OS4, every morning at uh, 7 a.m. in conjunction with our bylaw officers. They spend a couple of hours doing that every morning, and then they are on patrol in our streets, uh, working to move those areas of social disorder in our downtown and, and that uh, perceived level of safety in our parks and other areas where you might see people camping or gathering. That is illegal. We will not be allowing for uh, tents to be erected on our sidewalks or in our cities, uh, sorry, in our city parks. Um, There are designated sites for that during the nighttime uh, that the city has designated. So that is a um, full partnership approach towards that. We are working uh, closely with the partner agencies in our shelters to make sure that people are housed wherever possible in shelters um, to make sure that they have access to the available beds and of course there's food services that are being provided as well at those uh, breakdown sites when they break down camp in the morning uh, breakfast is provided uh, meals are also provided in the evenings yeah uh, you know I think uh, those listening to might consider uh, okay winter's coming again too and then uh, you know sheltering is always uh, you know especially in those really cold uh, you know weeks usually it's only three or four weeks here in Kelowna where it gets extremely cold but uh you know I think there's some anxiety that comes into our community about that uh, you know what what a hope is there for for rectifying some of those uh issues in the coming season as well yeah so BC housing works closely with the city of Kelowna and other partners such as Journey Home to address those housing needs. That is an area as your police chief, I try and stay at arm's length from, although very closely apprised on the updates and when housing announcements happen, uh, when beds are available, we try and uh, stay very closely apprised so that we can get people into those beds as we're dealing with them. But as you can imagine, your police chief, I have a lot of other things on my plate, so I try not to work too much into the area of housing people as there's lots of people that are at that table already and work very much with how do we deal with, I think the question was, our downtown businesses that are getting pretty frustrated with operating their business. They come in in the morning, there's somebody sleeping in their alcove. What can we do to address those um, issues? So for us, it's about enforcing those bylaws, enforcing those um, criminal code laws where important to do so. Mischief might be one of them, preventing the lawful use and enjoyment of a business and ensuring that people can access their business. Can we be everywhere at all times addressing all issues? And do we have a bed or a space or a designated place that somebody can go every day? No. So at times we are um, doing what we can to 
to cooperatively um, move somebody along, help them to find another place that they could be where they would be less um, burdensome to the business that needs to operate there. And also trying to um, do what we can to prevent that from happening ahead of time. So if somebody is consistently going to a location, what can we do from a crime prevention perspective that would make that place less desirable to uh, lay your head for the night? Maybe there's a better place that you could go and lay your head. So our police officers will uh, provide tents to those who are going to OS4 and are willing to use the outdoor sheltering site. They will, they, that's done in cooperation with the Salvation Army who um, will give them the tent in, as opposed to say, um, you know, laying out a sleeping bag in the bank lobby where it might be warm and dry. If they need that warm and dry and that could be done in a tent, that's something that we'll try and accommodate in order to um, entice somebody to go there. We certainly can't um, arrest somebody for being homeless or arrest somebody for sleeping, what we can do is when there's a tent erected, we could enforce that um, bylaw on a tent erected on a sidewalk or a tent erected in a park. Those are things we can do. When that becomes private property, it is a more complex issue because it, it is the renter of that property, not the owner of the property, but the renter of that property that we need to um, gain the cooperation of to evict that person from their property and then we're dealing with uh, a civil matter there we're assisting that person to move that person on so uh, complexities in the law for sure yeah. and as you can imagine our police officers are not wanting to um, put themselves in a use of force situation with somebody who is an example that was recently provided to me with somebody's leaning up against a wall and loitering in an area where um, a business is operating our goal in in that case is going to be to try and move that person on cooperatively as opposed to being in a use of force situation with somebody where uh, the offense isn't really clear there. You know, is this mischief preventing the lawful use and enjoyment of a business? And if so, are we really clear on our lawful use of an authority? Because if we're going to end up in a use of force situation that then is looking, you know, going to be scrutinized later through an inquest or an inquiry before the courts, gosh, we better be darn sure that we proceeded in the right way. And my job as the police chief is to make sure that my police officers are um, operating with a level of conduct and a level of professionalism uh, that I am very confident is met uh, with the highest regard of uh, accountability, respect, compassion, empathy, professionalism. How do we do that job uh, in this complex and unique environment that we're in right now? I think that's so true. And uh, it sounds like, you know, your police officers have to have uh, PhDs in de-escalation, right? Like that truly is critical to success in any format, I think in any situation you run into. And and I hope our listeners are hearing throughout this conversation and all of our podcasts, Rick, that, uh, you know, it, it's not just I'm just going to point a finger at the police chief, you know, or the superintendent or whatever I, you know, whatever individuals in front of me and say, well, you fix it because it's not that simple. And it, like you said, there's often situations which are not a simple, here's, you know, a grocery list of things we need to do. And once we do that, we're good to go. It's, it, it's, it, they're defining elements of each situation you arrive to, whether it's the law and what the law requires, as well as what the situation requires. And then there's individuals that you're trying to care for in the, in, in the every, each and every situation as well. And I think it, it's unfair to point it, you know, just interior health, just BC housing, just the police, just this. It actually is extremely complex and there are inhibitors throughout the the entire sector that cause difficulty in navigating this. And it takes a group of individuals collectively 
wanting to move forward. And so I, as I say all that, I, I guess one of the questions I have, you know, I am a businessman or I am an individual with private property or, or I, I, you know, I watch somebody on the rail trail and I'm struggling and I go, well, it seems like there's no one to point to then or no one to do. Like, how can I contribute? How can I, uh, you know, respond in a way that's going to move this forward? Yeah. So Love that question. Thank you. I think that there's two. There's the immediate here and now, and there's what are we doing that's going to bring uh, safety and uh, health to our community in the long term, five years, 10 years, 15, 30 years down the road. So when you look at the Alberta Prison Project, which is a University of Alberta uh, research project done by a lot of contributing individuals right now, um, there's a study of 800 incarcerated people in BC and, and Alberta in federal and provincial Um, facilities. What I find really fascinating from the takeaway of this um, study, and it also sort of looks at 200 um, detention facility staff, so uh, cell block, or sorry, um, prison guards, and studies some of the complexities of the individuals within the prison system. Who's coming to prison? What's happening once they're in prison? What's happening once they get released back out onto the streets? And um, some of the key takeaways that I had from that uh, that pertain to us in our community and how we move forward as police officers and police chiefs when we're lobbying and advocating the provincial government for the health that we need and the wellness that we need in our community over the long term. 95% of men and 97% of women who come in contact with law enforcement prior to the first time that they've come in contact with law enforcement have been exposed to physical or sexual trauma in their lives. 95 and 97% before coming into contact with the police in the first instance have had exposure to trauma in their lives. So if we want to look at how do we start dealing with somebody before they become involved with the police, how do we start preventing this crime from happening at a very early age, long before, we need to get those impacted by trauma on a pathway to health and healing quickly and early. You guys have had Ginny Becker on your show before. I cannot say enough good work about the uh Kelowna Child, uh, yeah, the the Child Advocacy Center. That response to trauma and how we address individuals early and often in trauma and how we wrap our services around them. If an individual in our community wants to do something right for our community to make long-term impacts in um, social disorder downtown, I believe they will get involved with, however that means, financially, um, as social workers, as nurses, as um child and family services workers supporting that work really early on providing um, support to families who have been impacted by trauma uh, in a meaningful way that we can ensure that children uh, have an opportunity to bring forward their uh, statement of facts they've been exposed to trauma how do we treat those children from then on we believe them we wrap services around them we prevent that crime from happening again we're voices for them for changes in systemic barriers towards success we are voices for them in education we make sure that they get the health care that they need here in our community uh, we make sure that they get a Uh, that they are not left in poverty. We make sure that they get the counseling that they need to then move forward in a way that they can have health and healing and not end up down a pathway of social disorder, uh, mental health issues, poverty, substance abuse, addictions, uh, eventually coming into contact with the police through either exposure to violence, having violent people around them, witnessing violence and or being um, perpetrators themselves. And those two pathways need to be made very clearly Uh, from the beginning and how we support individuals in trauma. So that's a long-term how we can help people. 
how can, how can we help that individual who's pushing a cart down the road that's over full, that is clearly got uh, mental health issues that has probably um, impacted by poverty and likely substance abuse? I think there's a few ways. One is we fund and support as the provincial government, uh, the uh, opiate uh, replacement therapies, the IOT and OAT uh, programs. One is injection, uh, the IOT program, and one is um, a substance replacement therapy for those who have um, addictions that are uh, different than the injection ones. So then this again is the uh, health field that would be really interesting to bring somebody in and interview them more in this, because what I understand, the last numbers I had heard was there are um, approximately 40 people in our community that are on the IOP program. There are a lot of people with injection uh, addictions here. And those substances cost 200 a day dollar habits at times. And how do you do you fund a 200 a day dollar habit? You do that through property crime. You do that through uh, stealing boards of $2,000 of property crime that is from your parkade or your garage or your car. And we steal that, we fence that property, and then we fuel our addiction. So let's get to the root cause of this and look at decriminalization. These substance abuse habits happen because um, individuals are not able to deal with their mental health or their trauma. That's a numbing um, way of looking at, at um, things. They are exposed to addictions very early on in their life. They don't have good attachment. They don't have good boundary parenting. They don't have safe homes to grow up in. These are all things that we know lead to addictions down the road. Addictions often are coupled with homelessness and and again, down the road, chronic offenders. It's not as simple as saying, let's deal with your addictions. Let's send you to counseling and get you on um, opiate replacement therapy. Because that person might say, I'm not prepared to come off of these, um, these, this high that I'm on because what I need to face when I'm sober is too hard and too difficult. And you couldn't imagine what I need to face. And I can and have sat and listened to many, many people in my policing career tell me their stories. And frankly, I have a lot more compassion and empathy, I think, than the average person when I see somebody with those complex issues where I can say, yikes, I know either you or an individual like you, and I've heard your stories, and they are really hard. They're really unbearable. Unbearable beyond belief. That is not the life I grew up in, and I certainly can have compassion and empathy for how you ended up uh, pushing this card around today. And so when I hear those stories and I hear the the people attached to it, the human attached to it, and I start to look at that from an, a point of empathy, I can easily push that person towards um, having some empathetic conversations with them. That might mean a smile and a hello. That might mean a, um, how are you doing today? Is there something I can do for you? Do you need anything? I'm not going to suggest that you pull $20 out of your pocket and give it to them. It certainly might help their drug uh, fix that they need that day, the numbing that they might need. Uh, it might also give them the ability to purchase the food, but it's unlikely that it's going to go to that. There's lots of uh, places in town that people can get food from. Um, I think sometimes just compassion and kindness can go a long ways in somebody's terrible day. And, uh, and then, of course, it is understanding that uh, we want our stuff to be secure and our property to be secure. So where do we advocate for people to be able to get uh, the help that they need? And it's not just as easy as saying you, you're you into a residential treatment program, which our publicly funded residential treatment programs are, 
aren't the greatest places. <laughs> There's lots of wonderful humans that work in those publicly funded treatment programs, but I certainly wouldn't want to have to attend one of those, nor would I want to bring one of my family members to one of those. So, um, you know, this is a big issue. And uh, I I think if you're the person riding your bike down the rail trail and you see somebody camped out there, uh, simply a smile is a good way to do it. And then going back towards where we can lobby and advocate for change. And that is uh, putting uh, health workers out on the streets, social workers out on the streets. Um, the provincial government is looking at, uh, and the attorney general's office is looking at ways that we can look at complex mental health issues. Um, our community court, our integrated court, sorry, as we call it in Kelowna, is a phenomenal way to invest right now as we invest in the outcomes of those as police, health, and social workers. Uh, integrated court, for those who don't know, is um, people who might have a low-level property crime offense or drug offense, and they are pleading guilty to that offense, and then they go before a judge who uh, rules on their case, and they might... Um, uh, sentence them to uh, compliance with a healthcare program, compliance with a counseling program, compliance with a um, meeting with a person from the Ministry of Social Development to be able to deal with some of their housing needs and or uh, needs where uh, they've got to be funded to be able to do to live the live their life, get a basic amount of funding, and they will go and do that work, and then a week later, and a week later, and a week later, appear before the courts to see what progress they've made. After a little while, if they're not making progress, and the police are reporting, or the healthcare workers are reporting that those people aren't showing up, we've seen people incarcerated for seven days, 10 days, and uh, and then they're back out on the streets. There are sometimes um, jail sentences that come from repeat offenses around these complex issues. We're not going to see them put away uh, behind bars, as somebody might imagine. Oh, you're not complying with this uh, healthcare program. The judge is not going to issue a sentence of a year, two years. That's not going to happen. So we need to be prepared to deal with this person back out on the streets seven days later, 14 days later, and figure out as a society, how do we then um, face this issue again? Not easy. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of resources that no go into kidding. that, right? Yeah. A lot oh, of resources so that go into that. So I have to say thank you for, for sharing. This is insightful information, and I and I thank the listener for for hearing this because I think any time we can to shine a light and, and to peel back the layers, we, we can. Um, I have one final question, and again, thank you so much for sharing the time today. Um so there's measurables, and I think anything that can be uh, managed has to be measurable, mm -hmm. and there has to be some metrics behind it. So you have metrics as a as chief of police, mm -hmm. and these, this might be caseload. Like it's all stuff under your control, I would think, that you would somewhat – Mary too, and, and you smile at that, and, and I get that. Um, but we did talk about this global pandemic <laughs> yeah. where the remand center said we won't be taking anybody anymore, right? But besides that, no big deal. Yeah. We, we got this. So there, but what I'm I'm suggesting is there might be a metric you have as as police chief, um, and there might be a metric that the city of Kelowna has. Like we all have different metrics that we're trying to to achieve. What? And, and for people listening, and we're talking business people to, to just taxpayers, residents, what kinds of, of barometers, what kinds of metrics can they, can they look at to say, we're, we're doing better, we're doing, like, because hope is a powerful thing. And, and a lot of people are frustrated, but they need to know where do they seek out that information or how do they, they find out 
you know, our community is, is getting better? Like, is it, I, I saw in the McLean's listing of, of, you know, crime per, per city. And, you know, those are all, those are all areas, but what metrics do you say people should dive into? These are areas that you want to look at. Yeah. So this year we launched our strategic plan in the beginning of April and I'll be reporting at the six month mark in November. So how we're doing on some of our key performance indicators. And for us, it is around uh, property crime uh, showing showing up at our best for every citizen, which is to me around um, speaks to how my police officers are doing each and every time they attend a call. And uh, we will be looking at things like um, public complaints. We look at um, the community satisfaction survey and how the community feels the police are doing. Um, when we look at safety in our public spaces, one of the other key pillars in my um, strategic plan, we look at just visible hours in our parks downtown. Um, the sense of safety, if you think of an event that is complex where we might not be dealing with criminality, but we're dealing with feelings of unsafeness uh, for your average family that's bringing their four and their seven-year-old downtown and they're going to be at an event and they're next to somebody with some complex mental health issues that's maybe not going to jail for those. Having a police officer there and present and available to respond should something go sideways really can lower that um, anxiety or fear of being out there and being able to feel safe. So for us, it's about visible hours um, down on our, our boardwalks, in our parks, downtown, um, that connection we can make with families and communities to be able to feel like they are safe downtown uh, when we're dealing with some of these complex issues that we've talked about that aren't going to be dealt with necessarily through incarceration sometimes it's just unallocated time for our police officers to do proactive patrols and so we're working really hard on making sure we can turn police officers out onto the streets and do that work um, Another one is decrease in property crime. We want to partner with the community to prevent property crime. And that means um, locking up our stuff at night. We're promoting the 9 p.m. routine and our online crime reporting, as well as our intel and analytics to be able to determine who is exactly stealing that crime, uh, that property and where that is going to putting those uh people behind bars and where possible um, when that becomes something that I don't have control over such as the court system um, or orders such as Zora which is a um, decision a caseload decision that that puts property crime offenders back out on the streets before they're they're uh, convicted multiple times sometimes 15 20 times uh, as recent cases have demonstrated we've arrested them 15 20 times for property crime offenses and they're still back out on the streets with um, orders to be at large until such time that they're dealt with in their cases and then they'll deal with all of those cases at once those are things that i don't have control over as your police chief that's coming from levels much higher than myself and so reporting up publicly on that we have this many files before the courts this year this is the number of charges that have been approved by crown council and here's what the court's response is to that so that the public can understand is this because the police aren't arresting people and putting them before the courts or is this because we need to be advocating and, and lobbying our provincial government uh, or the attorney general's office on the orders that they're putting out this the, it helps put the understanding and knowledge of the situation and the intel back into the hands of the public to be able to make informed decisions on how to decide whether or not the police are or are not a good bang for their buck and and are we paying for policing and the police are doing their jobs that we've set out for them to do so are they arresting people and putting them in jail yes absolutely you can see by this number of people that were arrested and uh, put before the courts have the courts held them 
again, that's out of my control, but I need to make sure that I'm putting the best case forward. There aren't barriers to, to those going to uh, the courts. And so making sure that those investigations are done really well. Lots of things that are, are in my control and lots of things that are out of my control that I report on uh, quarterly before the city council and mayor and then citizens can tune in either online or they can pull those stats that get posted through those um, reports and of course the media reports out on those as well and can kind of see how we're doing as a police force really clear for me it was important as i came in to have clear uh, barometer for the community to look at and say yeah people experiencing violent crime people experiencing property crime uh, people wanting to feel safe downtown and in our public spaces and then of course just your confidence in your police force all our key and priority issues for our community. So let's report out on those quarterly, get that information out there into the hands of the public, and then let's see how our police officers are doing. And as police leaders, I've turned over my entire senior leadership team this year. I've got uh, four new inspectors that have uh, partnered with me. They're all in play by November 15th. I will have my last one um, uh, joining our team. Our team can be really clear on how are we doing and where do we need to improve as a police department? What do we need to do as a detachment to be better uh, in certain areas? What areas do we need to turn our focus on with really clear data in front of us on what we're doing well on and what we're not doing well on and we need to invest more time in? That's great. I often feel unsafe around Rick. Is it possible, like, can I make a citizen's arrest or are, did you bring your handcuffs that we could organize something here? I just asked. Oh for... my goodness. I love it. <laughs> oh, so Scott. I feel like Edmonton is something that hasn't come up in this conversation oh, yet today, oh, but I'm going to bring it in because come, yes, come on. you were talking about what can citizens do? So reach, uh, 211 is something out of rich uh, reach 211 is something out of edmonton i just couldn't help but bring this up I i'm really so proud to. of you right now i, <laughs> I, I, I love you. you so much more than i did not being a hockey before. fan i'm going to bring this into reach 211 which is a crisis diversion model that we are really hopeful we can see in Kelowna at some point. Um, it doesn't have to be that same model. It needs to be unique and tailored to our community, but it is something that is a middle territory for how we deal with these calls of social disorder that maybe aren't a call to the police, which is extremely costly to your taxpayer and citizen who's paying municipal taxes. Um, we don't want every call to land on the call of the police. We're not social workers. We're not mental health workers. We are not uh, psychiatrists. We want those calls to be triaged appropriately and go to wherever possible, somebody who can deal with bylaws, social work, uh, crisis, uh, people in crisis, people who need um, food or healthcare or other things. Um, and so a, a model like Edmonton's oh, yes. reach two one one. Oh, <laughs> city of Master chumps. Class is what that's what comes to mind. Like champions, like city that's of really chumps. what comes anyway, to mind. They really are to... champions in this crisis diversion model. <laughs> so, as we explore that and talk about what citizens can do, if we um, and and myself looking at this, this is what I would like to partner with um, some individuals in our community to be able to launch. Um, and, and if we can launch this in Kelowna or a model that compares to this uh, sometime over the next three to four years, I think we have a middle ground to be able to deal with some of the calls of social disorder that gets people, um, it, it gives a citizen who says, I want to do something about this problem. I want to help out the right way to um, divert that call rather than just reaching out and calling the police. Because right now it's all falling on the shoulders of police, health, and I think that it could go to a lot of different uh, service providers in our community such as journey home. Maybe this is a housing issue. Maybe this yeah. is a bylaws issue. Perhaps this is something for um, other uh, community service providers to be able to uh, come to the table and address. Wow. Okay. So Edmonton, yeah. 
like a subpar hockey team, <laughs> but they have really good ideas for other things. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I know right now. And they, yeah, I think in the near future, they play that other team that's a little south of them. I don't recall their name. One I do know. recall their flames, which remind me of hell. But besides <laughs> that. <laughs> I knew you'd bring Christianity into this whole thing. Anyway, Kara, I, I can't say enough. I thank you so much for this. Uh, other than the Edmonton comic, uh, wonderful uh, as always. And, and Scott, well, you're... You just listen, uh, Karen. If you want to be a co-host instead of somebody else, like let's get serious. I don't know if I mentioned it today, but I've got a full-time job. (laughs) Honestly, thanks. We really, really appreciate your time. Absolutely, pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening in on the Homeless in Kelowna podcast. If you have feedback, reach out to us via email, Rick at TempestMedia.net.